this, I'm putting air quotes around decentralized finance because they're becoming centralized. When Poly Network says blacklist and they say they're decentralized finance, well, now they've centralized the finance. It, it's a little bit humorous. But all of these different networks started blacklisting together, which by definition means they're centralized. So just as a side note, that's funny from an economist standpoint. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome back to a second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. I guess it's welcome to the first or to the second hour. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, I was getting my tenses confused. It's a very tense subject here. Uh, this is Jake McClure. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. Jeff is out of town, uh, way off on the West Coast. I think he's trying to control the forest fires out there. He's listening from Oregon and in the process, hopefully, is not getting burned. Uh, he's sent some pretty amazing pictures of him near the water, and, uh, and it looks good out there. He and his wife, who just strangely, by the way, his wife is my mom, and, and her husband is my dad. So Elder Baldy, for those of you who didn't know it, I get this pretty about once a year. People tell me my brother's great on the radio, and I'm like, really? Uh, when have you been listening to my brother? Oh, on your radio program. That's my dad. Yeah. So I'm proud of him. I think he's proud of me sometimes, maybe more. He says he's proud of me, so I'll, I'll believe him on that. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. The regulatory aspects, now we're going to get into a different subject. And that is, I'm already beginning to hear the boogeyman, the what's going on in the budget bill, the $3.5 trillion budget bill, Biden's budget bill or Pelosi's budget bill. Schumer's budget bill, it doesn't matter who you label it to. What is it? How is it out there? What's going to be in it? How are they going to pay for it? What taxes are going to be raised? So just the way I talked about technology, I'm going to give some underlying aspects, some different layers of what's happening politically. If you think back, I know this is going back a long ways, four months ago, there was a big push on the Democrat side of Washington, D.C., not the state, to raise a whole series of different types of taxes. 
capital gains taxes for unrealized uh, stuff at death. So say, uh, this is referred to as the step up in basis and getting rid of that. So if you owned a big piece of property and you die, then it's all taxable at the point that you die, or at least when you sell it. The problem with that is there's record keeping issues. Well, who opposed this? Why is this no longer something people are talking about in Washington? Well, here's the headline from the Wall Street Journal on this back in May. Farm District Democrats raise caution flags on capital gains tax plan. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Democrats don't have enough votes to raise, to get rid of the step up in basis. Just hold that in your mind, period. They're not even talking about it anymore. Now come forward to today. Centrist House Democrats threaten to block budget resolution vote. This is a Democrat budget. So I'm saying this, this is four months later. It's the same group of Democrats that are opposing some of the things in the $3.5 trillion budget framework. It's a framework. We don't have what's paying for it. We don't know what taxes are going to be raised yet. You're going to hear over the next two months, because this should, well, or a month and a half, this should be passed by the end of September. You're going to hear all kinds of stuff about what could be happening or what they want to put in here. There are literally dozens of proposals out there right now, and none of them are in the framework. The, the Senate passed a framework so that they could begin the conversation. Now, Nancy Pelosi has held up uh, the infrastructure bill. Now, this is a different bill. The infrastructure bill, anybody that's listened to us for very long, we're very pro the infrastructure bill. We were pro when Trump was trying to do it, when Obama was trying to do it, when Bush was trying to do it. We had some infrastructure done at the end of the Bush administration and at the beginning of the Obama administration. But the roads and bridges are still in a lot of trouble, and we need to get some massive, massive funding on that. So a, a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill passed the Senate on Tuesday, and it had 19 Republicans voting for it. So it passed with a huge bipartisan amount. All of the Democrats voted for it because we can all agree we need to fix our bridges and we need to get better roads and internet connections need to be available for businesses across our country. It just has to be there if we want to have our tax revenue maintain itself as we, if we want a growing economy, the government's got to invest in this stuff and pretty much everybody agrees on it. The people that voted against it didn't vote against it because they didn't like infrastructure with some piece in there that they didn't like. So just have that as a, as a statement. We're all in agreement. We need an infrastructure plan. Needs to be in place. Trump pushed it. Bush pushed it. Obama pushed it. Biden pushed it. It's coming out now, and it's, and it's bipartisan. Well, Nancy Pelosi hasn't allowed it to come to the floor of the House for a vote yet because she wants to use it as a leveraging piece against this $3.5 trillion budget framework which is going to pass without any, Demo without any Republican votes on it. That's the way it's being designed. Well, these centrists in the House, these Democrats, are saying we're not going to vote on that at all, period. We won't vote on that until we get a vote on the infrastructure bill. Then we can have a normal debate on this new thing. Don't hold this other bill up that we all agree we need based on this, or we're not going to have a good debate. 
So keep in mind that there is a solid chunk of between 9 and 13 House Democrats. They can only afford to lose three House Democrat votes to get something passed. Even with this special method of budgetary item that they're passing this thing, they can only afford to lose three. And they have between nine and 13 that are being balky and that are sinnerous and that are saying we don't want to raise taxes that might cause a, an increase in the estate tax. They've already talked about estate tax issues. They, the, the farm Democrats are what they're being called, farm belt Democrats, because they don't want to see their constituents that have a big uh, farm or ranch have to lose it to pay estate taxes. They don't want to see the families that have had a multi-generational farm or ranch have to sell the ranch to pay taxes on the ranch. Uh, That doesn't make sense. So just know there are going to be lots of headlines, lots of boogeyman stories that don't take into account something that is relatively new this year. There's a group of Democrats in the House that are willing to oppose Nancy Pelosi to keep taxes down to keep spending down, and to pass an infrastructure bill. And I know that sounds like I'm in support of Democrats or Republicans. It doesn't. And it's just me looking at it saying, what's the likelihood of things to pass? These are pure numbers. If we look at that and we say there's no new new deal, then the new spending plan doesn't pass, even in its infancy. We know that. That could shut down the government. This is an issue. This is a budgetary thing. It has to pass at the end of September, or they have to pass a resolution to keep the, the government open. It's the same kind of self-imposed noose that we put our necks into multiple times in the past. But know that there's enough resistance, even on the Democrat side, to not do something that's going to be on the extreme end of dangerous on the taxes. We're going to get a tax increase. I've got no doubt about that. It may not be this year. But we will have a, do- a tax increase. That sounds promissory, except that it's already on the books for four years from now, 2025. That's when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is done for the personal income tax side. So just know, expect taxes to be higher in the future. We're spending a lot of money for the pandemic. We're spending, a- now we're talking about climate and uh, other issues in this new budget package. Be aware that it's out there. Taxes are going to be up. The boogeyman scares about huge increases on the middle class, probably not going to happen. I'm not going to say not going to happen because this is Congress and anything could happen, but very, very unlikely to happen. There's enough rational people that say this doesn't make sense. We do have to pay back some of this debt, though. I think a good time to raise taxes would be in a year or two, not this year. Um, and it sounds like now I'm all a proponent of her raising taxes. We have to pay the debt. I don't want my taxes to go up. I really don't. But at some point, we have to pay the debt for all the borrowing that we did as a government. And once we do, if we actually get that in our mind to pay it off, it's just like people that have a lot of credit card debt that are like, I'll just kick it on later, kick it on later. Once you get disciplined about paying it back, you can do it. I don't see that intestinal fortitude out there, that discipline out there in the American public right now, I think we're probably going to continue to borrow for a while. But we may see a tax increase so that we don't borrow quite as much. (sighs) 
It doesn't sound like I'm very optimistic on the regulatory legislative side of things. I'm not, uh, but I never am. And somehow we muddle through. On the technology side, that may be enough to sustain us through all of this silliness that the government just does. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat government, in my mind. The government's just not efficient at making the decisions that we need to have made. And they've never been. You can look at headlines at any point. This is one of those weird things. And um, and Winston Churchill, and this is actually a good attributed, actually he said it, quote, may have been said by Disraeli before him, but Winston Churchill actually said it, which was um, democracy is the absolute worst form of government except for all the others. And that's where we are. So on average, we tend to get things right over a long period of time. It's kind of like the stock market. On average, it tends to be right over a long period of time. Can it be overpriced? Yes. Can it be underpriced? Yes. How do we know it's underpriced? Well, then because the price goes up later. How do we know it's overpriced? Because the price goes down later. Um, those are just things that we have to be aware of. This I've got lots of stories on inflation out there too. And I'll, I'll touch on this before the break. Inflation's a big subject right now because the consumer price index remained unchanged this month um, or, or in uh, July from June. But it's up like five plus percent. Consumer price index is that basket of goods that you, I want to see the basket because there are no baskets in the basket and the basket has to be pretty big in order to hold a house and a bunch of other stuff. But they keep calling it a basket of goods, and they're watching the prices up and down. That's, that's a big raise over a year ago, over 5% up. And when we average it out over a two-year period, it's only about 2.5% up, which is much more reasonable. It's not as terrifying looking. It's out there. It's still a high inflation rate, and we're going to expect to see more of that over the next year as the supply issues are there. It's not inflation in the sense of we have tons and tons of money and, and tons and tons of goods, but we have more money than goods. It's inflation in that our supply is having trouble arriving on time. Once we get the supply chain issues sorted out, it will work better. How is it that the supply issues are out of whack? Well, if you've been to a restaurant recently, you'll understand it a little bit. When restaurants couldn't feed you, they stopped ordering food. The people that sold them the food didn't want to lose business. And at the same time, people stopped eating at restaurants. It didn't mean they stopped eating or we would have had a much higher death rate. They continued to eat. I know common sense sounding. Where did they eat? They bought from grocery stores. We talked about this a year ago about how the supply chain had to change so that they could package butter in not single-use containers into the big tubs again so that you could go and get a, a tub of margarine instead of a little square of margarine or a tub of butter instead of a little square of butter individually wrapped for a restaurant. They had to change how they were selling it and who they were selling it to. Then restaurants opened back up. Well, they didn't send a memo to the manufacturing folks saying, in six weeks, I'll be serving again, and this is the number of customers that will be sitting at my tables. So there's a lag, and that lag is there across all aspects of the economy. 
And it doesn't include people getting sick again or for the first time from COVID or fear of getting sick. So know that we are not out of this woods yet. We still have a lot of of issues when it comes to the supply chain end of stuff that's adding to inflation. Why is this something that the Federal Reserve and we don't think is going to last a great deal of time? Exactly what I've been saying for the past hour and a half plus. We are innovating at a level that I have never seen before. Our productivity numbers are through the roof. Two and a half, three percent productivity growth throughout this year. Even in the pandemic, we're getting better and better at doing the same things. Our, we are increasing our investment into our technology at a rate that has never been seen before, even during World War II. Because there's a lot of money and people expect companies to actually use it for innovative things. They, they don't want lots of dividends, though dividends are nice. They would rather see a better technology development and more profitability into the future. So that is, that is a, a big part of why we see inflation as transitory. What kept inflation down over the last two decades was the fact that if, if an American company raised the price to sell an item, someone else in the world wouldn't. They would keep the price down there and then other people and people would buy the lower price. So it would put a company out of business for raising its prices. Right now, everybody's kind of raising their prices at the same time because it won't put them out of business because nobody's in direct competition because nobody can get it to delivery in time. Once we get that, that part figured out, we're back in competition. And what's been going on in China, we alluded to this last week. There is a massive trade war in China between the Chinese right now. The government of China is cracking down hard on information, on the information side of technology, not the manufacturing side. At the smaller level companies, there is a, a, a level of fighting over customers that is just, it is, it is, it is a full on war. There's just fisticuffs and, and knives are out and people are, are breaking contracts and stabbing each other in the back, sometimes literally. Yes, with a knife. There is a trade war going on in China that is influencing the quality of the things that you receive. When you order from your typical places, from Amazon or from, from Walmart, what you receive, if it hasn't individually been tested, these Chinese companies are changing the parts after they introduce them. And it's because they can cut down on the price. And so they introduce a part that works and then they cut down on the price and they don't keep testing until eventually the part that's out there doesn't work anymore. And I talked about this at length in April. Um, it's worse now than it was then. Quality control is, is out the window in China, which is increasing the speed that we're bringing the supply chain home. So even though the pandemic was the first thing that shut down, and then before that, the trade war, it's not really the first thing that really shut down during the pandemic, our shipments from China. The Chinese, in getting desperate and trying to cut corners on their quality, 
are causing the companies that are manufacturing there to look seriously about manufacturing here. The price of labor is much higher here. Even now, after the Chinese have been doing this for a while and their labor prices are up, it's much higher here, so we're turning to automation, and that's why we're seeing productivity increases. So that was a very long chain to come back to as soon as two years from now, prices are likely to drop drastically on rare earths, and that includes all the magnets involved, on batteries, on most technologies, the chips that we have shortages of now are going to be, we're going to have a surplus of them and we're going to find ways of using them. All of this I see as optimistic several years out, but we're not out of the bumpiness yet. And this this repeated theme throughout this program has been, we're not out of the woods yet, but we will be at some point. We can see the light on the other side of the forest. If you would like to join the conversation Uh, We've got email address in here of jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey Charlie, or the personal wealth coach. Uh, Philip, thanks for the the cheer. I appreciate it. Um, I'm being told that I'm doing a great solo job. I'm I'm not sure about that. (laughs) We'll be playing some commercials. We'll be back on the other side with more of the personal wealth coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and I am sitting in here all by my lonesome, my bald head all alone. Jeff is off in Oregon, and he says he's listening. Um, So thanks for spending your vacation listening to to me. Uh, We've got other stuff to talk about. We've talked about a lot of stuff the last couple of hours. Only got about... 11 minutes, a little less than 11 minutes left in the program. But it's a good 11 minutes, uh, just over 10 minutes now. The story I want to talk to you about is about the $600 million worth of cryptocurrencies that were um, stolen last week. $600 million stolen by one person. Just think about that for a second. Uh, When you hear about the lottery winner who wins a $600 million lottery, but the reality is that if they take it as a lump sum, it's a lot less than that, and they've got to pay taxes on it and so on. So they're now down in like the 200 range in reality. This hacker got away with $600 million dollars of cryptocurrencies. How did he do it? What did he, what is this? This is crazy. What's 600 billion? How do you steal that? Okay. There's a first we're going to lay out some stuff out there. Um cryptocurrencies are often um referred to as decentralized finance or DeFi. If you hear people talking about DeFi, that's what they're talking about. DeFi is decentralized finance. Why is it decentralized? Well, because it's it's they can all see all the ledger books. It's peer-to-peer. There's nobody in charge, no single person in charge of, of who owns what. In the case of centralized finance, um, banks or the government are aware of who owns what. 
Um, we don't have centralized finance in the United States, by the way, just as a side note. The government doesn't know how much money you have on hand. They could probably figure it out on an individualized basis with a lot of effort and warrants and so on, but they're just not really good at keeping that data, and we don't really want them to be. So there's no centralized finance in the United States. In, in China, they've got uh, pretty centralized. In North Korea, it's very centralized. Uh, Kazakhstan has extremely centralized finance. So there's places that have very centralized finance, and then there's less centralized, and then there's DeFi, where it's not centralized at all. There's a bunch of stuff that's owned by people that's just verified by the other people that own the stuff. Okay. Each of these cryptocurrencies have different networks. They run on different cryptography platforms, blockchains, if you will, um, where who owns them is recorded and maintained so that everybody's aware of who it is. Well, what happens if you want to take a Bitcoin from one of those networks to another or uh, Ethereum from one place to another and maybe convert it to a different... What if you want to trade Ethereum for Bitcoin, how do you do that? If you don't want to sell it and take dollars for it, how do you just trade? There are networks that have developed that do just that. And the one that was hit with this big heist is called the Poly Network or Poly Network, not the. Uh, and it has a methodology so that you can exchange these different cryptocurrencies for each other and switch from one blockchain to another and, and i know this sounds complicated it's not as complicated as it sounds we just don't have understanding of the vocabulary yet so they're they're doing transactions on here and he found a way of accessing directly each of those blockchains and just converting it all to his account well, as soon as he did that, Poly Network started letting everybody know on the different blockchains, this is the account that holds that money. We don't know who holds the account, but this is the account number blacklisted. Nobody do business with it. And then more and more of these decentralized finance, this, I'm putting air quotes around decentralized finance because they're becoming centralized. When Poly Network says, blacklist and they say they're decentralized finance well now they've centralized the finance it, it's a little bit humorous but all of these different networks started blacklisting together which by definition means they're centralized so just as a side note that's funny from an economist standpoint he stopped or he i'm i'm assuming he it could be a female hacker this hacker has 600 million dollars sitting there and he can't or she can't get to it. So it looks like the the posts that this hacker are giving are becoming more altruistic. Oh, I was only doing it to, to show everyone that there's a security problem. I really don't want the money. Well, you, you can't get the money. So it's really easy to say you don't want something that you can't get. Why would you take it if you didn't want it? Oh, for the fun of it. it took $600 million for the fun of it. Okay, so... All of that is to point out, number one, there's a lot of dangers in cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, they're not regulated the way the rest of the monetary markets are. Uh, it's like getting into the foreign exchange market. You can lose money from bad actors as well as from actually market moving. Uh, so just be aware of that. And I have another question out here from Alan. It's a good question. The subject is Afghanistan. 
The question is, what impact on our economy will occur if Kabul falls to the Taliban? Sadly, nothing. We're not going to have a big impact on our economy. Sadly, happily, because Kabul's probably going to fall to the Taliban. We kind of knew that when we left. Uh, if you just look at the general's statements when we said we're leaving Afghanistan, originally set up to leave under the Trump administration, the generals all said the Taliban's are gonna the Taliban's gonna take over when we leave. It's not like this is a surprise. The question is, how long do we stay? Is it forever? Because the Taliban's gonna be there when we leave anytime. Now, is it cool what's happening? Absolutely not. What is our responsibility? We broke it, we bought it, but how long do we maintain it? Do we just have a colony over there? So there's lots of questions, and all those questions I don't have an answer for. This question I have an answer for. The economy of Afghanistan is tiny. It's always been tiny. The danger there is about unemployed people getting radicalized. Unemployed people are still there, and they're still getting radicalized. Um, their, their force in the world has less to do with their economic impact and more to do with ignorance and anger. Uh, so what's important, I think, is that a lot of the Taliban's leadership is no longer sanctioned. We don't have U.S. sanctions on there because we made a deal with them during the Trump administration and into the Biden administration that said, hey, if you stop attacking Americans, we'll pull up these sanctions and, and you'll be able to go about your business. We didn't say anything about attacking the Afghan government. So the question is, once the Taliban takes over, what is that going to do to the region? They were in charge of Afghanistan before we stepped in and said, hey, you can't just be harboring Al-Qaeda here. Well, they're not harboring Al-Qaeda anymore, but they have other radicals doing this stuff there. Um, the question then is, how long do we stay if we don't leave now? And that's always been the question. We didn't have an exit plan. This is Colin Powell. Uh, what's our exit strategy? We didn't have one. We, we sort of didn't have one with Germany either. We developed it over time. We didn't have one with Japan. We developed it over time. We never developed one with Afghanistan. It's very much like Vietnam, except that Vietnam was never stable. And multiple times during our holding of Afghanistan, it was relatively stable. So we didn't have an exit plan, and certainly the people of Afghanistan didn't really and still don't think that the government of Afghanistan is legitimate. Otherwise, the army would fight when the Taliban attacks them and they're just leaving. So that just says something there. What happens to our economy? Nothing, sadly, happily. Uh, it's a tough situation and I'm sorry to see it happen. But I really don't know what an alternative would be. Be worth talking about at a later date. But we're about out of time for this week. Thank you all for listening, those that did. Those that are not listening right now, I'm going to call you names and you won't even know about it. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for listening through a solo program. I hope it was entertaining. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give fiduciary investment advice to individuals, trusts, corporations, partnerships, um, and that's business advice, economic advice, investment advice and management um the phone number to call during the weekend when nobody's on the job uh, but voicemail is is 254-947-1111 or you can toll free us if you still have a landline 
1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. You can go to podcast sites for more. You can use the contact form on the webpage or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.